Church, go ahead and have a seat. As you're sitting, go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians this morning, chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, but if you don't have your Bibles, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Um, but before we get going this morning, I want to maybe remind us or maybe inform you of something that happened last week. As a church, we turned four years old last Sunday. Praise God. Amen, right? Isn't that awesome? Four years ago today, Sean planted this church. Sean Eppers, he's our lead pastor. He's away this week getting some rest, but uh, he planted this church in the living room of the Peterson home. Uh, the children's ministry was in their kids' bedrooms. Uh, there was like 30 people, um, and God was glorified even in that moment. And yet four years later, here we are today with nearly 200 people that we average week by week. And one of the coolest things I was reminded of this morning is even though we've grown numerically, uh, we haven't lost that genuineness of a family year by year as we've grown. Isn't that amazing? That year by year, even as we've grown and we've, we've exponentially grown by numbers, we're still close as a family. And that's what I actually want to talk about today. I want to talk about family. One of the most important factors that God has used in building his church is the way that God has used each and every one of us individually as a family. God has used each of us through the ways that we have encouraged and built up one another along the way. And so whether you've been here for four years or just a couple of months or maybe this is your first Sunday, the truth is God is either using you or wants to use you to build his church. And as we're going to read today, God wants to do that through our encouragement of one another. So when Paul is speaking to the church in 1 Thessalonians, he tells them this in chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. And that's true of this church today. And so personally, I just want to thank you. I want to thank each and every one of you that have uh, sacrificed to the church, served the church, supported the church, encouraged one another, and built one another up in the church. To serve alongside you for the kingdom and for the glory of God is an honor of mine. And I'm really grateful that I get to do it alongside each and every one of you. But even though I fully trust that God will build his church as he sees fit, I do want to spend some time this morning gleaning all we can about what Paul has to say regarding encouragement. And so in order to do that, I want us to first put ourselves, put our thoughts, put our emotions into this verse this morning. And I want to ask ourselves a question. What does encouragement or encouraging and building one another up mean for us today? Practically speaking, what does that look like for us today? If this verse were a resolution or a goal or if it was a job description, how would we as a church go about building up and encouraging one another in the culture and in the society that we live in today? You know, if we were left up to our own brilliance and our own wisdom, we might feel like we have to encourage one another through the likes of social media, right? We'd have to, we feel like we'd have to keep up with all of our friends online. We'd have to like every single one of their posts. And some of y'all post some pretty funky stuff. And so that's just awkward if we have to like everything. Or we might feel like we have the necessity to encourage one another by commenting on our clothes or the houses that we live in. Really, our encouragement would look very superficial and outwardly focused. And even if our encouragement was able to go deeper than that surface level, it might still fall short if we don't really know what's going on with that person or what season of life that they're in. So thankfully, God doesn't leave us up to our own brilliance or wisdom, does he? He's given us the scriptures. And so let's look at what Paul has to say today about that. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11 through 14 is where we're going to be spending most of our time. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. 
We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That's it right there. These verses describe how we're to encourage and build up one another in the church. And I'm not sure if any of you saw this, but Paul repeated himself in verses 12 and 14. He's, Paul says, and whenever something's repeated, that means we have to pay close attention. So Paul says this phrase, and he uses the word brothers twice. Or in some translations, it says brothers and sisters. And he's using this phrase on purpose. He's describing a family. So you know what that means for us today? That if we're going to continue encouraging one another and building one another up, then we need to start viewing one another and treating each other as if we were a family. We really need to become a family. And in order for, us to that, in order for that to happen, Paul shares with us that there's several different types of people in the family, or truly several different seasons that members of the family may be experiencing. And in order to encourage them, we need to approach each of them differently. We need to encourage each of them differently. This may make more sense for those of you that have more than one child. Uh, this concept is pretty easy to grasp. Think about this for a second. I have three boys. Some of you have four kids, and some of you have more than that. God bless your hearts. But when I'm in the moment of having to encourage one of my boys or love on one of my boys or even discipline one of my boys, I have to stop and think for a moment. I have to stop and think for a second because each one of them receives encouragement and love and discipline differently than the other. Each of them requires a different response or a different approach to it. And I remember with our first son, (laughs) we started reading all those books, What to Expect, right? Or How to Get Your Kid to Fall Asleep at Night. And I'm looking at all these books, and these books are great. They have these smiling kids, and they're all cute, and they look like life is just incredible. And then I'm looking at my son, and I'm like, what am I doing wrong here, right? My kids, not to say my kids didn't smile or laugh, but when I tried to follow that exact routine that that book spoke about, how to fall asleep or how to get them to stop crying, it didn't really work. I failed quite often, partly because, if I'm honest, I'm not really good at following directions. Uh, But more importantly, when you read these books, the author is assuming that all situations, all environments, all families are the same. And so it's just not true for us, is it? To make matters even more difficult, once you figure out how it works with one kid, they move into a new season and all of a sudden everything's out of whack. Or you add another kid to the mixture, and what worked for one kid doesn't work for the next. Either way, you learn that each family member requires a different approach, don't you? Each family member requires a different approach to encouragement, and periodically, each member requires a different approach depending on the season that they're in. And the same is true for the family of God. Each of us are different individuals. Each of us come from different backgrounds, different socioeconomics, different families. We were, wa- we were raised differently. Each of us are in different seasons of life. In the end, each of us require a different approach when it comes to being encouraged and built up. And so I, this morning, I want to look at how Paul breaks this down. How does Paul list out four different types of people or four different seasons that the body of the church goes through? All right, so let's begin. Again, verse 11, it says this, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you were doing, just as we have been doing for four years, building and encouraging one another up. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you and admonish you. So the first category that I want us to focus on today is those who labor among you. 
And I believe the person Paul is referring to here is the spiritually strong or the mature, people who are in a season of seeking out the Lord, people who live out God's call in their life. They're responding to God's wisdom, wisdom, those that are living on mission for the glory of God. And so how do we do that? How do we encourage those folks? Because if you're like me, I've often thought to myself, wow, man, their faith is rock steady, right? Their relationship with Jesus is so rich, it's so solid. They don't need me to encourage them or speak into their walk at all. And when we see spiritually mature people in the church, it's easy for us to think that they don't need anything. It's easy for us to think that they'll be fine because more than likely they'll just quietly keep on doing what they're doing. They'll keep on seeking God, following God, serving God, listening to God. They'll just keep doing that with or without my help. And typically in the church world, what we do is we pay attention to those that aren't doing so well. And the same could be said for our kids. It's the old adage that the squeaky wheel gets the grease. It's usually those in the church or in the family that have the most problems that get the most attention. And in most cases, that is okay for a season. But what I love about Paul here is he pays attention to the healthy believers as well. And he's reminding us that anyone is susceptible to discouragement and suffering. Yes, even the healthy and spiritually strong go through seasons of discouragement. Sometimes they lose their way. And Paul's telling us that we need to remind them of the work that they've been doing. And that's the strategy for the spiritually strong. We need to remind them. Now, I know Paul doesn't explicitly say that in these verses here, but he actually models this throughout this entire book and the letters to the church of Thessalonica. He reminds them to keep on keeping on. Paul models it again. He says something like this. He says, look, mature believers, I know you don't need to be reminded of this, but I'm going to anyways. Let's look at chapter 5, verse 1 in Thessalonians. He says this. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware. All throughout these letters, Paul is encouraging the mature believers in the church, those that are seeking God's will, seeking God's voice, serving him. And he's saying to them, look, I know you know this because you're mature believers. I know you know that there's a time and a season that Jesus is going to come back. And I don't need to tell you why you're doing the things that you're doing for the glory of the Lord, but I'm going to do it anyways. I'm going to remind you. Paul is encouraging them to keep on keeping on. Therefore, Paul is telling us the approach to encourage and build up the spiritually mature at Providence North, because even they are susceptible to discouragement, is to remind them. Remind them again and again and again why they are doing what they are doing for the glory of God. So the next person that Paul is going to talk to us about here it's in the same verse, is actually spiritual leaders. Again, verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and those that are over you in the Lord and admonish you. All right, those are leaders in the church. And here's how Paul tells us to encourage them. In verse 13, he says this, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Or in other words, Paul is saying we need to respect them. We need to honor them. We need to value them. We need to appreciate them. And we have all kinds of spiritual leaders in the church, but one of the more obvious groups of leaders that we have are the elders. This is an incredible group of godly men. And let me tell you, church, these elders are laboring for you, and they're laboring for the Lord. Beyond the litany of meetings that they attend on a monthly basis where they're, uh, that are concerning the governance and direction of the church, uh, they are raising up new leaders. 
They are leading ministries. They are leading and hosting community groups. They're serving in Providence Kids. They're serving on the hospitality team. The only team that they're not serving on is the worship team, and that's okay because I've heard them sing. But church, with all that being said, we need to regard them highly. And our elders right now in this church, if you don't know, are Sean Eppers, our lead pastor, Daniel Moore, and David Neuenschwander, and they are laboring hard for you. And we need to appreciate them and their families that are sacrificing to serve this church. Incredible group of godly men. We are thankful for those that God has placed to lead this church. And outside of the elders, we have all kinds of leaders. And many of these leaders are leading in multiple capacities. We have community group leaders. We have Providence Kids leaders. We have Project... Uh, Providence students leaders. We have hospitality leaders. We have worship leaders. So the question we need to ask ourselves then is, how can we highly esteem or thank or appreciate or value those that are leading the church? How do we encourage those who are leading among us? Well, perhaps you can do this. You can send a text to your community group leader. I got one of those this week. Super encouraging from someone that wrote me this week, just said, I'm praying for you. I'm excited for this Sunday. You could write a thank you note to Providence Kids leaders or students leaders. You can prepare or share some encouraging thoughts to those who greet you at the door, those who labor to turn this building into a place of worship so you can come and experience the risen Christ. Either way, we need to highly esteem those that are laboring for us, those that are leaders in the church. We need to appreciate them. And I know personally, because this is my tendency, the temptation we have as human beings is to point out the things that aren't going well, right? The things that we might do differently, and often we focus on the negative. Now, that's not to say there's not a place for constructive criticism. Criticism, that's not what I'm saying at all. But the point that Paul is telling us is the approach that we should take to encourage and build up the leaders in the church is by respecting them and honoring them and valuing them and appreciating them. No matter how small the contribution you might think their labor is, we are called to encourage and highly esteem the leaders of this church. And Paul says an easy way to do that is this, by living in peace. Look at the end of verse 13. It says, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. Paul is telling us this, and this is so true, but leading people is so much easier when we are at peace. When there's grumbling or backbiting or arguing and dissension within the church or within certain ministries of the church, life is so much more difficult or next to impossible to encourage and build up one another when we are dealing with all of that. And living in peace so that we can encourage the spiritually mature, living in peace so that we can encourage the leaders of the church is so important because we are relying on them to encourage others in the church just like this next group of people that we're going to talk about or this next season of life that we find people in. The front half of verse 14 describes them. Paul instructs us how to encourage another type of person, and this person might be someone who's experiencing, again, a certain season of life, but they are the spiritually rebellious, or Paul refers to them as the idol. Paul says, and we urge you, brothers, again, there's that reference, that idea to family, admonish the idol. Again, when Paul is talking about the idol here, he's referencing the spiritually rebellious. He's talking about those who are acting out of complacency in their faith. They're actively choosing to waste their time or lives on things that God has not called them to. They're willfully disobeying God's commands in their lives. They're causing dissension both in and outside of the church, both in their nuclear family and in the family of God. And there's people that are idle in every single church. 
people who have experienced God and people who have at one point in time submitted their lives to him, but then they've decided to begin willfully and intentionally disobeying God's call on their lives. It might have started small with some small compromises that led down a slippery slope or because some deep pain that they experienced or lies the enemy has allowed them to begin to believe for whatever reason, these people are willfully and dangerously disobeying God. It might be through a certain type of abuse, whether it's substance abuse or sexual abuse. Perhaps it's manipulation of people's actions and minds. It could even be impulsive anger, explosive lashing out, whatever it may be. These people's sin is typically easy to see, even if not at first. It will eventually reveal itself fully. Their sin is more often than not overt and easily recognizable. And Paul, again, is telling us the approach to encourage and build up these family members or this type of person is, quite, diff- is a, quite a different approach than those who are spiritually mature and those that are leaders. Paul says that our approach is to admonish them. Paul says in order to encourage the spiritually rebellious, we need to warn them. We need to caution them. We need to rebuke them. Quite frankly, we need to, be, we need to very directly and lovingly speak to them about what they're doing wrong and how God can make it right. We need to talk to them about God's justice and his mercy. We need to talk to them about God's power. Then we can talk to them about his love. Because the goal for this type of person that's in this season of life is to have some sort of breakthrough moment, a moment of decision where they repent and they turn from that sin. Now, they may spend the rest of their lives turning away from that sin, killing that sin, and they may spend some significant time and energy recovering and healing from the consequences of that sin. But really, it just takes a moment to make that decision, to flip that switch, to turn from that sin back to God. It may be a hard-fought moment to finally relent and repent, but then it will be such a moment of relief. All it takes is just for a second for the Holy Spirit to flip that switch and in their minds and their hearts for them to realize that they're better off killing that sin than submitting to it and living with it for the rest of their lives. And in order for that to happen... They need to see and hear and recognize how far they have fallen from God's holiness. And then they need to see and hear how far God is willing to reach down and pick them back up. One of my favorite quotes from Tim Keller is this, we are more sinful than we can ever know. And God is more loving than we can ever dream. And our responsibility as a family is to show those that are in that season of life both sides of that coin. We're called to encourage and build up the family of God, even those that are willfully disobeying God and causing pain. And we do so because we love them. We do so because we know that they are in pain. One of my best friends reminded me of this quote recently. We actually heard this at a, when we attended a sermon in Austin, and it's this, the most miserable people on this planet are those who have experienced God but are no longer following him. And so we encourage those. We encourage those that are experiencing that pain by warning them and lovingly pointing them back to God and then allowing God to wrap his arms around him. And truth be told, these are not easy situations. They are heart-wrenching, full of brokenness, broken people in a broken world. But God is never broken. He's a God of hope. He's a God of love. He's a God of redemption. He's a God of restoration. And no one loves to admonish others. No one loves to admonish their kids. 
No one loves to admonish family members, but we do so to point them back to Christ. We do so to show them that they are never out of the redemptive reach of Jesus Christ. Amen? Lastly, we're going to look at this final type of person who may be in a season uh, where they're spiritually discouraged or they're weak. Paul says this in verse 14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Paul mentions the faint-hearted, or in other words, the discouraged. And Paul is talking about those who might become hopeless or worried or sad more easily than most. People who feel all alone in the world. People who are afraid, they struggle with anxiety. Maybe they try to prove themselves to other people. They try to control certain situations, but they give up real easily when times get tough. Really, it's those who have yet to begin fully relying on the Lord for their needs. And these people need to be pressed into because Paul says they're worthy of extra help and support. So how are we supposed to encourage those people? Well, Paul says you need to comfort them. You need to be gentle with them. You need to offer them hope through Jesus Christ and the truth that God always keeps his promises. We need to speak to them about God's faithfulness and the love that he has for them. And you want to know the best way to show them that God is faithful? Be faithful to them yourself. Don't give up on them. It's going to be tempting. Comforting people and caring for people and encouraging people can be tiring over the long haul. But we don't give up on them. Discouraged people need to be comforted. And weak people need to be helped. Because oftentimes in seasons of weakness and discouragement, we are helpless. We just can't encourage ourselves or build our faith up until someone comes alongside us. Oftentimes, those who are weak have no idea how weak they actually are or how helpless they actually are until someone comes along to them to help them, to encourage them, and to build them up. Oftentimes, the spiritually weak aren't even truly aware of the depth of their issues that they're dealing with or the pain that they're suffering from. And this type of person, this might sound weird when I say this, but this type of person reminds me of the Iron Man race. All right, so stick with me for a second, all right? In case you never come out of your house, there's one day a year where Ironmen converge on all over the world. They converge on the Woodlands, Texas, and they participate in the Ironman. And I love Ironman Day. I call it Josh Day. All right, this is my day. Honestly, if you run in the Ironman race, I'm your biggest fan, just to let you know. It's not your family. It's not your kids. It's not your friends. It's me. So just to know, I'm out there. I'm all over the race course that day. I'm there when you swim. I'm there when you mount your bike. You dismount from your bike. I'm all over the run course. And I have to be careful when I say this, but it's one of my favorite days of the year. (laughs) I love you, babe. Our anniversary is important, but this is definitely one of my favorites, all right? But here's why. It's not these incredibly talented and elite athletes, although they are amazing. It's the ones at the end of the night. It's the ones that have been moving along the course since just before 7 a.m., and now it's close to midnight. It's the discouraged. It's the disheartened. And in many cases, it's those who have no idea how bad a shape that they're in until they feel the encouragement. I mean, they're literally finishing that course running like this. They just have no idea how bad a shape they're in. But when they near that finish line, and you see them rounding the corners, that final stretch of the marathon, and they begin to hear the cheers and the music and the praises, and they hear everyone shouting for them. That's it. That's my favorite moment of the race. All of a sudden, these athletes, they straighten out their backs. Their knees get higher. 
their feet aren't dragging along the ground. They momentarily can ignore the pain that's shooting throughout their body. And then you see it. You see the hope in their face. You see the realization that there's a literal light at the end of the tunnel. They're about to finish the race that's set before them. And the same is for the family of God. When there are those in the church that have been running the race and they get discouraged, but something's gone wrong. Perhaps they've experienced a tragedy or pain. They're struggling with fear and anxiety. When there are those in the family of God that just don't know what to do or how to do it or how to move forward. But then they round that corner. They walk into this building. They walk into this room and they see you waiting for them. They see you waiting for them to cheer them on, to encourage them, to come alongside them, and you begin to do that. You comfort them. You love them. You tell them that they have hope in Christ. You walk with them, and you begin to un- they begin to understand God's faithfulness because you have been faithful to them during the entire race. And then all of a sudden, their posture changes. Their fears and their anxieties fade away. Their mind is clear. Their focus is set on God. And you see the hope of Christ in them. (laughs) That church is amazing. Above any Ironman race, any athlete crossing the line, seeing the family of God come alongside to help the discouraged, to help the weak, to build them up, to point them to Christ, to see that they now have a hope in Christ as their foundation, those are my favorite moments. Those will be Ironman moments all day long. It's moments like that that I long and I pray for for this church. So as you can see, Paul shows us that there's many types of people, all kinds of seasons that we experience in the family of God. And as you can see from the text, the way you encourage discouraged people is different than the way that you encourage spiritually rebellious people, isn't it? When you are warning someone, the Holy Spirit could flip that switch quickly. And your direct warning could prompt contrition and result in repentance and turning back to God in that moment. But you can't necessarily expect to do that with the discouraged. You can't slap a verse on the situation and say, hey, you know, God works all things out for his good for those who love him. Peace, I'm out. Hope all goes well. You can't do that. You have to be available. You have to stick with them. You have to stick through that season of time. And that's why we need different strategies for different types of people. Am I right? In the text, Paul never says to warn the discouraged. Because the last thing that the discouraged need is those, in those moments is to have their sin pointed out to them. No, Paul says you need to comfort them. And then on the flip side, Paul never instructs us to help and comfort the idle or the spiritually rebellious. That's the problem many of us fall into. We begin justifying their sin or diminishing its consequences because we just want to support everyone and we don't want to hurt people's feelings. But Paul is so wise, isn't he? He knows our tendencies. Because if someone is willfully sinning and all you do is tell them about God's love, then they will just have this idea that God's love will cover everything and that they can get away with everything that they're doing. But that's not the truth. They need to see their sin. They need to see the consequences of their sin so that they can repent and reach out for the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. And this is why we have to have radically different approaches to all these different people. This is how we become more like a family. This is how we encourage our family day in and day out during the life of this church. And this stuff is hard to do isn't it? 
I've been a pastor for six years full-time now. I've been leading or managing people for 18 years, and I still struggle to understand where people are at. I still struggle figuring out how to encourage people, what their needs are moment by moment. It's tough to figure this stuff out. It's tough to figure out the right approach to those people, and it's even tougher to follow through with that approach. It's tough to walk alongside the rebellious and the weak. And it might feel daunting to have to remember to remind and appreciate those that are in leadership or those that are spiritually mature. So how do we do all this? How is this all going to happen? Paul gives us the answer, the end of verse 14. He says this, be patient with them all. We need patience. Because all four types of people and all four different types of seasons that people experience are going to take you a lifetime to encourage As you live in and experience the family of God, you will see and experience all these different types of people and all these different types of seasons, and people are going to weave in and out of different seasons. And Paul says we need to be patient with them, just as God's been patient with us. So as we wrap up today, I want us to see and remember this, that our identity of the church is rooted in family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ of God, the Father Most High. We've been adopted into his family, and our identity is rooted in him. And so if we're going to be able to encourage one another, if we're going to be able to build up one another for the long haul, if our desire is to see God do some incredible things in this church, then we need to start treating each other and viewing one another as if we're family. And these verses can realistically be lived out in this church today. Right? Because we're not too big, where you can just float in and out on a Sunday morning, and we're not too small, where everyone knows everyone. But the key to actually living these verses out is we have to be engaged. We have to participate in the family of God in order to know how to encourage the family of God. Am I right? If I spent zero time with my boys... If I spent zero time with them, if I never engaged them in conversation, if I never tried to understand what was going on in their day-to-day lives, then my efforts to encourage them and build them up would most likely fail. Or I would never try in the first place. And the same is for the family of God. If we aren't participating in worship together, if we aren't living in community together, if we aren't serving the family of God together, if we aren't engaging others to understand what is going on in their lives, then our attempts to encourage them will fail or we'll most likely just never even try. We'll walk in on a Sunday morning, we'll sit in our chairs quietly, we'll leave when that last song is done, and we'll never take on the responsibility to encourage and build up one another like we've been called to do. But this is the calling of our lives as believers in Christ, to encourage and build up the church. And when we do so, we will begin to see God accomplish and do incredible things in and through the body of Providence North. We will see the spiritually mature. We will see the leaders appreciated and reminded of why they are doing what they are doing. We will see the spiritually rebellious turn from and repent of their idleness, and we will see the discouraged and the weak with the hope of Christ as their foundation. And that is beautiful, church. That's what we would call family. That's the kind of family that I want to be a part of. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time together, to come together as a family. 
knowing that each of us have different things going on in our lives. We're being pulled in different directions, and yet we can come here and remind one another through our worship of you that you are good, that you are a, you are a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of forgiveness. And we can encourage one another through that, through our just the simple act of worshiping you, God. So I thank you for that this morning. Father, I thank you for every individual in this church and even those that aren't here this morning. I thank you that you've created each of us differently. That you've given given us different ways to be encouraged, different ways to be disciplined, different ways to be loved. How beautiful it is that you've created so much so differently and it all comes together under and our identity is rooted in you and your family. And so I pray for us as a family today. God, you've done miraculous things over these last four years. Miraculous things. We've seen people encouraged and built up. We've seen people that are discouraged find hope in you. We've seen the idol turn and repent. We've seen the leaders and the mature move on and continue to do what they're doing. And I thank you for all of that. But I just pray that as we continue to build up one another in this family, that we wouldn't forget of our responsibility to encourage each other in different ways. That we would seek each other out. That we would be engaged as a family. but I know that all relies on us being engaged with you first. So let that be the foundation. Our engagement in in you, our hope in you, so that we can go and show others the hope of Christ. We love you, Father. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship.